Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Before we begin, a quick word from our sponsors. Oh, we don't have sponsors. You're our sponsors. Thanks so much to all of you for giving to OnScript and the Biblical World podcast. Uh, We couldn't do this without you, so we appreciate that and all the help that you give. And also, thanks so much to our producers, uh, specifically for this episode, to Taylor Terzek, who produced this episode. Thanks, Taylor, and um, to the rest of the team as well. All right, enjoy this episode. Well, welcome to another episode of OnScript. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Father Isaac Morales and to talk about his new book, The Bible and Baptism, which is in the Catholic Biblical Theology of the Sacraments series. Uh, There's at least one other published at the moment um, that I know of, The Bible and the Priesthood, and I'll mention that later on. But others are planned. There's one on on marriage, is that correct? Right. The intention is to have one on each of the seven Catholic sacraments. So how many are published at the moment? At the moment, two. Uh, The marriage one should be out sometime next year, and then the others are in process, various stages. Super. Well, um, I, Father Isaac Morales was born and, and raised in the suburbs of Chicago, and he received his Master of Theological Studies degree uh, with a concentration in Biblical Studies from the University of Notre Dame in 2002. And his doctorate, and this I think is when I got to know you a little bit, um, in New Testament from Duke University in 2007. And after serving as an assistant professor of theology at Marquette, you know, have I said that right? I always say this word right. Marquette? Marquis? Yes, it's Marquette. <laughs> Marquette. So, sorry, just demonstrating my ignorance for everyone to hear. Uh, Marquette University. And you did that for around five years. Mm-hmm. You felt a call to join the the Order of Preachers or um, the Dominicans. Yep. And you were ordained to the priesthood in 2018. So not long before the... Um, the pandemic broke out, and since then you've you've taught in the Department of Theology at Providence College. And before this, uh, you were called Rodrigo Morales and published your PhD under that name, yep. uh, The Spirit and the Restoration of Israel, with Moore Zebeck. Um, for those who are interested, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about your name change and, and what that meant to you. Sure. Yeah. So not every religious order in the Catholic Church does this, but some religious orders, uh, when you enter, you'll take a new name. Um, and the way it works uh, for the Dominicans, at least in, in my province, so the Dominican order is divided up into various provinces throughout the world. And um, when you join, um, so your first year is called the novitiate and you have a novice master and he asks you for three names. And you give him three options, uh, and he chooses one of those. But um, generally speaking, if you have a good reason for the name, and there's nobody else like in still in formation who has that name, you'll get what you want. And there weren't a lot of Isaacs. In fact, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one in our province. Um, so my full name, Isaac Augustin Morales, I picked Isaac for a number of reasons. Um, I wanted a biblical name, being a biblical scholar. And I liked having an Old Testament name uh, to remind us that we're not Marcionites, right? that the Old Testament is a, a good part of Scripture. Um, but then the, I was thinking, you know, it's the order of preachers, guys who talk a lot. Isaac doesn't say very much in Scripture. So it seemed like, well, how do I fit this in? Um, there are actually two things about Isaac that make it fitting. One is that, so as you might know, um, so people who join a religious order will traditionally take three vows, the vow of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Um, But in our formula of profession for the Dominicans, the only one we uh, explicitly make is the vow of obedience. The other are understood from our constitutions. Uh, And as you also know, uh, later or, well, early Jewish interpretations of the Akedah, Isaac was obedient to Abraham. So it's a reminder of the need for obedience. Um, And then the other thing about the name Isaac uh, is that, as you also know, is it, it means laughter. So it's a reminder of the joy that should characterize our religious life. Uh, and then I took Augustine as well as a... So 
some guys take double names, which confuses everybody and they never are called the right name. <laughs> I took Augustine as a devotional name, um, partly because I entered relatively late in life. As you said, I had my master's degree, my doctorate, I taught for a few years. And then finally, I, I stopped being stubborn and realized that this was where God was calling me. Uh, and Augustine took a long time before he um, came to, to be baptized and become a Christian. Um, and there was similar things that held him back. You know, of course, he struggled with chastity. Um, I wouldn't say that I struggled with chastity, but I did have a desire for marriage and family. So just I felt a real kinship with him. So, yeah, those are some of the reasons that I chose those two names. Well, uh, welcome to OnScript, Father Isaac Augustine Morales, to talk about your new book is all I can say. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm glad we got to make it happen. Yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Now, it's always struck me that you're a, a great man of peace and gentleness, and uh, as well as being very thoughtful. And I felt that that really came through in, in your book. You write in a very gentle way. Um, and I find that quite interesting, just to see how your character comes through uh, your writing. I, it's not something I'd, I'd spotted before, perhaps, uh, but I can only encourage my, my listeners here to read it and, 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 and feel that too. Um, but you start the book... And you say that you have been thinking and writing about baptism on and off for about 10 years. So, so what is it about this theme that, that draws you? Well, part of it is because of my tradition. You know, the Catholic Church is a sacramental church that emphasizes the importance of the sacraments. Um, I should say part of the on and off is because, so before I joined the order, so the year before I joined the order, the reason I say I was at Marquette for around five years is that last year, that I was employed there, I was in Munich on a Humboldt Research Fellowship. Uh, and I was at the time working on a project on baptism in Paul. And I spun out a couple of essays from that. In fact, that's why I was invited to contribute this volume to the, to the new series. Um, but then I joined a religious order. <laughs> and in the novitiate, I didn't really do um, any research or scholarship. And then for about five years, I was in Washington, D.C., um, taking classes because I hadn't done enough school, right? Um, now, I had to fill in things like pastoral theology and moral theology and systematics, things that I hadn't done in my coursework in the master's, the graduate program. Uh, and so baptism was just kind of on the back burner. I was thinking about it, but I wasn't doing a lot actively um, to, yeah, I didn't, I didn't start writing this book really until um, around my second year at Providence College. Um, so many of those years were off <laughs> in the on again, right. off again, right. uh, thinking about baptism. Well, perhaps we could then jump right to the one of the big ideas um, behind your book. And I'll just read out this, this passage um, right at the start. And, uh, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your different approach entails. You write this, you say, over the course of the past century... Several major works have appeared on the topic of baptism from a biblical perspective, and these works share one common feature. Each of them focuses predominantly, if not exclusively, on the texts of the New Testament. In most cases, they begin no earlier than Jewish practices related to washing and purification around the time of the New Testament. Now, of course, you, you, you'll admit this seems obvious. The rite of ba baptism first appears in the New Testament, and the Old Testament says nothing explicitly about this foundational Christian sacrament. Nevertheless, the approach of this study will be different, inspired by the writings of the Church Fathers, as well as the Church's liturgy. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. And this is a feature of the series as a whole. So the idea behind the series, uh, it's called A Catholic Biblical Theology of the Sacraments. And by biblical, we mean biblical, not just New Testament. Um, so for each of the volumes, there will be uh, sections on the Old Testament as well as the New the idea being that even though the Old Testament doesn't explicitly speak of any of the sacraments, uh, we can get a much richer appreciation for their significance and their meaning by looking at these types that, for example, the early church looked at um, the the church's liturgy to this day. I've, I've, I'm probably not going to be able to find the passage in there, but uh, somewhere in there I mentioned the various images. Oh, yeah, I right to it. Beautiful. <laughs> um in the introduction, I note that, um, so in the rite of baptism, 
Um, there's a rite of blessing the baptismal waters in the Catholic Church, and it appeals to all sorts of different texts, you know, the waters of creation, the flood, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, Christ's own baptism in the Jordan. And uh, in doing this, the the rite basically follows the lead first of the New Testament, because several of the New Testament writers uh, either implicitly or explicitly speak of baptism in relation to these Old Testament images. And then, of course, the church fathers took that and ran with it. Um, although, for the most part, within within reason, um, there's one there's one passage in there that I cite from Cyprian. Uh, he says something to the effect of, "Wherever water is in Scripture, there is baptism." And I think mm, that might be a bit much, <laughs> but I think better to err on that side than just ignoring all these water passages. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Well, I mean, the, your entire first part is as you've entitled it, written for our instruction, water in the Old Testament. And you've got chapters on life, you know, water associated with life and death and freedom, purity. As as you researched this book, you know, were there any surprises? Did anything sort of stick out in an unanticipated way as you went through these um, uh, written for our instruction chapters? Yes, I, I could say two things. Um, I mean, the whole book really, it was a delight to write because it was really a, a process of discovery for me. Of course, I had to give them an outline. You know, you have to do that for a book proposal. But, so I knew generally where it was going, but I didn't have a predetermined idea of this is how I'm going to argue it. So I just kind of looked at the texts and um, and saw what I found there. Uh, so one was just in the process of writing on my own. It was, uh, you probably picked up on one of the key themes in the book is worship um, and the notion that baptism leads to worship. It's the introduction to a life of worship. Uh, and that was something that I didn't anticipate. I, I wasn't planning on doing that, but I just saw again and again these beautiful images of somebody passing through the water in some way and then it leading to worship. And of course, uh, I mean, according to you know canon law, that is what baptism does for Catholics, right? It introduces them into the church's life of worship. Um, but this is a much more beautiful and poetic way of thinking about it than just like, oh, these are the rules, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. So to give like one example, you know, the Israelites pass through the waters of the Red Sea and then the Lord feeds them with manna and asks them to observe the Sabbath, right? And not long after that, um, you have the covenant ceremony in Exodus 24 where you have, you know, sacrifice, and that sort of thing. And, but I would see it over and over again. You see it in the Psalms, you see it in passages in Isaiah, um, just everywhere. So that was, to me, I think it was something that was unanticipated, but also really tied the book together well. So I was delighted to find that because uh, I wasn't sure. I didn't want it just to be a hodgepodge of, oh, this is what this text says about baptism. This is how you could apply this one. It was nice to have a thread that connected the whole argument. Um, and it's, it happens to be a theme that's just dear to my heart in general, theologically speaking. Um, I mean, future projects that I intend to work on will also work on worship. So it'll be, um, it'll be nice to have some coherence to my <laughs> body of work and not just a bunch of random things. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, certainly a golden thread I noticed as, uh, as I read through. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the other point that surprised me a bit, and this was, um, at the prompting of one of my editors who... I don't think he had anything particular in mind, but he said uh, in the chapter on waters and death, um, you might think about some of the uh, kind of more cosmic imagery or that sort of thing. And I forget what else. He also mentioned, um, well, the passages in Ezekiel about um, the king of Tyre and Pharaoh. And so hmm. I said, all right, hmm. I'll look at them. And um, lo and behold, I think they give a really beautiful if unintentional anticipation of what Paul speaks about in his passages on baptism, because the King of Tyre is depicted in Ezekiel as, um, as kind of an Adam figure, right? He was on, in the garden of God, or on the mountain of God in the garden, and he's dressed as Adam is. And of course he's prideful and that's what causes his destruction in the sea. Uh, and so as I like to put it, sometimes there's a little King of Tyre in all of us right? <laughs> that needs to be drowned in the waters of baptism. And then continually, put to death, because that's another thing about this book is that um, even in the New Testament, I would sometimes veer off the New Testament section, excuse me, of the book, I would sometimes stray a little bit from baptism, 
to point out how Paul, for example, will sometimes use language associated with baptism in his exhortations. Right. So, for example, in Romans 13, he'll talk about putting on Christ, right, which he talks about in connection with baptism in Galatians or this notion of putting to death our you know, fleshly desires. Uh, and of course, for Paul, that's something that happens initially in baptism. Um, but what I try to argue is that that's uh, baptism initiates us into a whole pattern of life that has to be kind of constantly renewed in us, as it was for Paul himself. He talks constantly about his, you know, experiencing death in various forms and then living again. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I remember you you link the king of Tyre very much to Paul's language explicitly of the old human, um, which I, find, I found fascinating indeed. Yes, okay, so... Um, there's a number of these chapters, and, and maybe we could just sort of dip our toes into the one that looks at water across Scripture, evo- evoking themes of, you know, life and vivification. Um, can you just to give us a flavour of, of how these chapters work? Could you give us a, your favourite example of, of that theme? Sure. Uh, my favourite example of the life-giving power of water uh, is the last one that I use in the chapter from Ezekiel 47, right? The beautiful image of the river, you know, uh, flowing forth from the temple and giving life. And of course, you have all this Edenic imagery. Um, there's fruit trees and, and all this abundance and salt water being turned fresh and that sort of thing. And the reason that that's my favorite image uh, is because, again, it ties into the primary theme of, of, the, of the book because uh, it's worship, right? The, I, a, another recurring theme throughout the book is that, yes, water is a source of life. Well, on the natural level, it's a source of life. And so that makes it a fitting instrument, if you will. I'm, I've studied Thomas. I can't help using talking about instrumental causes, right? <laughs> um, but um, when it comes to baptism, the source of life that water imparts is God himself. By itself, if you just pour water over somebody, that's not going to give them eternal life. Um, and so the fact that the river comes from the temple that shows that the real source of life is the Lord himself, and he bestows it upon us through a simple, ordinary thing like water. Yeah, yeah. I, I underlined exactly this passage. I mean, I, uh, I was going away. When I, when I received your book in the post, I was going away and I, I couldn't take much with me. So I painstakingly photocopied every page in. Um, and then read it on a um, on an e-ink device. So, so I, I've I've only got a PDF left at the moment. But uh, where you write the vision described, this Ezekiel vision describes the water of the river as an instrument of God's own life-giving power. I thought that was a beautiful way of summarizing um, that section. So then, um, you you turn to uh, the waters of death. I love how you pattern this onto. Paul and, and dying and rising, and we can get to some of that later. But mm-hmm. in commenting on Isaiah uh, 55, verse 1, you, you rightly note that because water is readily available in contemporary Western society, it might not occur to the modern readers just how costly water could be in antiquity. And again and again, you pepper the book with these moments of uh, alertness to our own potential hermeneutical blind spots, which I found um, very helpful. And you've got these little boxes as well. I did check the the, mar- uh, the sorry the priesthood book in the series, and I couldn't see any there. So this was presumably your thing. Uh, actually, it is meant it is meant to be part of the series. Um, there there are maybe three or four in Anthony Jambroni's volume on the priesthood. There are not very many, um, uh. but there are a couple. Um, I'm not sure how to explain that other than maybe I just I found more things that were <laughs> worth putting in there or just different dispositions as far as um, how, yeah, how to go about the project. But the idea is that, yeah, each of them should have have those boxes. Um, and part of the thought there is. Um, so Baker, part of what got Baker into the Catholic publishing world was the Catholic commentary on sacred scripture, which you might be familiar with. They've got, yes, I think the yeah. whole new Testament is done and they have plenty of those sidebars as they call them. Uh, and so they wanted that. Um, and I think the idea was to be able to draw on the church's living tradition, um, 
without kind of interrupting the flow of the argument itself um, and to use kind of illustrations that might not fit neatly into into the argument. Uh, and yeah, there, there are some beautiful things in, in some of those sidebars. Um, I w- it was also the, the thing that was also a little bit confusing to me as I was writing was because in uh, the commentary series, they have several of these things uh, and they have different ones, ones for like the living tradition, ones for history, you know, kind of cultural background, that sort of thing. Um, and so I initially thought it was just going to be the living tradition thing. And then my editor said, no, it can be kind of whatever. So most of them are, you know, church fathers or like a couple of medieval writers like um, Aquinas or Cabasillas, this not very well known 14th century Byzantine theologian. Um, but then I have one, for example, on mikvah O on these uh, ritual baths from the first century. So occasionally you have one that <laughs> like two or three of these things are not like the others. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I noticed that. Yes. And one on Joel and uh, um, yeah, all kinds. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed them. So next time you see Father Anthony Schembroni, you can say, what's with the lack of boxes then? <laughs> We're slacking there. Um so now the waters and and death. You you obviously obviously you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about the flood, which you do. Um, it's a slightly meta question, perhaps, but you know how how did you handle the the ethical issues relating to this language? You know the God wiping out the population of the earth, and and especially because it it's so pertinent to your theme of, of baptism. Right. Um, in the book, I didn't handle it <laughs> very well or at all. Really, I just kind of sidestep the question. Um, so just off the cuff, I suppose I would begin by saying, you know, the Lord is the giver of life. It's a gift that he gives us that we're not owed in any way. Um, and you could say, given our, our fallen or our broken condition, fallen condition, however you want to speak of it, it's really alone, right? I mean, we're all going to lose our life at some point. Um, and, so I suppose I would say I, I trust the Lord in his wisdom to know when is the appropriate time to re- remove somebody's life for reasons that he knows far better than I do. Um, it it does relate to the theme of baptism in that, I mean, the so Genesis describes the people as wicked, basically, right? It's That's why he sends the flood. It's not this arbitrary, you know, oh, I'm angry, I'm going to you know, <laughs> destroy people. It's that the, you know, wickedness grew up so much. And it's not like in some of the other ancient Near Eastern um, stories where it's, you know, they're interrupting our naps, right? They're too loud. You know, there's too many people. Let's wipe them out. Um, It's because of the wickedness. Uh, And so that, you know, is a fitting image of what baptism is supposed to do for us, which is to destroy the wickedness that is in us. Um, Now, does it do it perfectly? Um, Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say that baptism doesn't do anything, but we do still sin after baptism. Um, in fact, I was recently leading a seminar and somebody asked a question related to this. Well, even Noah himself, right? He's the righteous one, right? He's, he and his family are saved. Um, and then after the flood, he gets drunk and you know does all these things. So yeah, um, does all these things. Yeah, to keep it kid children friendly here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the one example we're given is that he gets drunk, um, but um, yeah, it's a mystery, right? Uh, I think even for Paul, it was a mystery, right? He, you know, he. I think he did believe that baptism actually joins us to Christ in His death and resurrection. And yet he had all these, you know, problem children that he had to write to and be like, stop doing that. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, so uh, you've got a chapter on on freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as part of this first part, and uh, you helpfully note the following at the start. You say that in the popular imagination, the central point of the story of the Exodus is the political um, uh, liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. While freedom certainly plays an important part in the story, the biblical account of the Exodus is far more nuanced and paradoxical. And then you go on to talk about um, the importance of of worship, uh, again, resonating with what you said earlier on. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that complex vision and, and what it involves? Sure. And for a little bit of background as to why people emphasize um, 
liberation from actual slavery. I suspect, at least in my country, it has to do in part with our sad history of slavery in the 19th century. And understandably, African-American slaves found great hope in the Exodus. And there's great spiritual, you know, when Moses down in Egypt went, went in Egypt land, let my people go, right? Um, and of course, that was, it was, praise God, that we don't have slavery in this country anymore. Um, but yes, I do emphasize worship. The beautiful thing about the book of Exodus is that the language for worship is service. And so the book of Exodus, the um, the contest is, or the question is, whom will you serve, Pharaoh as a slave or the Lord by worshiping him? And uh, you mentioned how I said how it's nuanced and paradoxical. And the paradox is that um, you become free by serving, but you have to serve the right person, namely the Lord. So I, I say in there something to the effect of it's not a question of um, slavery or freedom, but it's a question of what kind of service will liberate you, right? And, and I think that worship, coming out of yourself, realizing that you're not the center of the universe um, and that the Lord deserves praise and worship um, is what frees you from being curved in on yourself and making yourself, you know, the end of everything. Yeah. Yeah, as you say, freedom comes through worship. Um, you, you've got a chapter on purity. I, I, I was looking forward to reading this one because mm -hmm. I, having having done a little bit of work on Paul's language of, of holiness, um, I think it's one of the most sorely misunderstood categories. Mm. And uh, and you're alert, of course, to to all of these. You point out that it's purity isn't necessarily an ethical category and. Um, and when examining these various rituals for purifying, like the ceremony of the Red Hypha, you state, some might wonder why God would insist on these rituals for admitting people into his presence, particularly when many of the things that render a person impure are unavoidable. And um, I just wanted to know what you, what's your favorite response to that question? I mean, you know, Peter Lightheart in the, in the notes, but right. it's a fascinating question. It is. It's a fascinating question and a controversial one. You know, nobody can really has really, I don't think anybody has settled the question. Um, why he asks, asked the Israelites to do it, I'm not sure. I think my favorite interpretation of the symbolism of ritual purity, though, is, uh, well, I'm sure you're familiar, the one that's perhaps the most common or one that has a lot of traction is that it has to do with death and not bringing death into the sanctuary. Um, I bought that for a while, and I think there's, something to it, but I think I find Jonathan Klawans's interpretation much more uh, persuasive because he does note um, the priests brought animal blood into the sanctuary that if that's not related to death in some way, you know, what is right. And so Klawans argues that it's um, the priest in particular was basically imitating God. So the idea was, uh, it's not just death, but it's anything that relates to, so on the on the part of the priest, it's anything that relates to our mortality slash changeability. So it's not just blood, but it's things like semen, right, or menstrual blood that's related to, you know, becoming something, new life coming into being, whereas God simply is, you know. Um, and the, the thing that really I find um, particularly persuasive about Klawans is he it's been a while since I've read it, but he does point out a number of parallels between the way that the priest would treat the animal that was going to be offered in sacrifice and the way the Lord is depicted in the Old Testament. The Lord is depicted as a shepherd who, you know, chooses the sheep. And and uh, even, I, again, it's been a long time since I've read it, but Clemens, even down to the way that the priest carves up the animal, it kind of reflects some of the things that are said about the Lord in the Old Testament. Um, so that's my favorite interpretation of the symbolism of ritual purity, that it has to do with imitating God in order to enter into his presence. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. So this is the quick fire round. Um, do you know anything about the quick fire round? Do you know what to expect? You know, here? I've not listened to a non-script podcast for a while, but I remember hearing a quick fire round. I don't remember the details. So it's, it's simply... I haven't sent you any of these questions, and they're largely nonsense, but it's just to try and lighten it up and, and get to know you um, uh, in a different way, I suppose. Okay. Um, 
it's just an opportunity to be a bit of an ass, really, I suppose. This, that's how I see it. I love it. it. Matt, I love Matt it. and the other <laughs> co-hosts will t- understand it very differently, I suppose. Sorry, there are other ways of lightening it up, right? Doesn't Matthew Bates ask somebody to sing a song or something? <laughs> My goodness, yes. Um, yeah. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'll take quick fire over the song. But if you could sit down and talk with any Pope, current or past, which one would you most like to chat with? Any Pope... Um, I think Pope Benedict the 16th actually. I really admire his writings. Um he was a he was a gentle soul, may he rest in peace. You know, it's not even a month since he's passed away, but his writings are beautiful, they're crystal clear and very profound and um and he had a deep love of scripture and uh, saw the importance of he saw the crisis in biblical interpretation, the importance of finding ways to read scripture theologically without abandoning the great gains of modern biblical scholarship yeah absolutely and he uh i think it was an ecumenical impulse as well there were a number of protestants who've um read him with great benefit um in that regard okay is it true that catholics can't travel at light speed sadly it is yeah something to do with them having mass i hear yeah (laughs) Uh, okay favorite work of fiction uh or fiction author uh the lord of the rings um, although a close second would be C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Okay, very nice. Um, I don't know. Have you read Till We Have Faces? No, no, I oh, haven't. It's, it's, it's a profound book. I, I, one of the great things about being at Providence College is it's a liberal arts college, so I have a wide range of possibilities for teaching. And so I've actually taught a course on Lewis for the past couple of years. And Till We Have Faces, he retells the Cupid and Psyche myth from the perspective of Psyche's older sister. And it's, it's just a profound work. It's, it's about, you know, it's properly and improperly ordered love about, um, faith. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you didn't say that your favorite work of fiction was the Bible. Um, can you (laughs) tell us a surprising fact about yourself? Surprising fact about myself. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I have a, a little bit of Lebanese blood in me. My mom's grandmother came from Lebanon. Mm-hmm. That's why I've got the schnoz. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He, he just squished his nose for those who are listening to this and can't see the video. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Is there an area of theology and or biblical studies that you would want to develop and change? You know, what would it be? Hmm to develop and change um perhaps christology um and uh, i mean you've done some work in this regard but there's i mean what i would love to see is to bring together some of you know the work you've done the other early high christology um scholars with somebody like josh chip who's done a lot of interesting work on messianism and Mm. kind of integrating the two um when i teach new testament here what i try to do is um the way I integrate messianism or Jesus' descent from David is that uh, to emphasize the the humanity of the two natures Christology. And it was a very particular humanity. It was a first century Jewish uh, humanity. And so it's important to know about his ancestral roots and the culture in which he lived and that sort of thing. So I would love to see those um, better integrated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, amen to that. Of course, we've got Matt Novenson over here. Um, another big name in, in this regard. Okay, so let's um, uh, move on into part two of, of the book, in which is titled The Substance Belongs to Christ, Baptism in the New Testament. And of course, throughout, you're going to be making links with what you discussed in the first part. And the, the first of these chapters looks at Christ as a model of baptism. And you admit, right, in, in the chapter that Uh, The baptism of Christ is in some ways unique. Um, But what do we have to learn from Jesus' submission to the baptism of of John in a nutshell? Uh, I would say at least, let me think, three things. Uh, Ultimately, we'll go in threes. Why not? Um, One would be um, his solidarity with us, because, of course, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, I don't believe Jesus sinned, uh, but he identifies with us. Right. Um, second, I would say, um, well, the very word that you use, submission, right? It's humble obedience. It shows it, that's another aspect of his humility. 
uh, not just his solidarity with us and our sinful condition, but also his obedience. And then thirdly, and I think this is actually very important, is, so this was a ritual, and Jesus submitted to a ritual. And so that suggests, you know, there is there's some allergy in some sections of modernity and, and in some Protestant traditions, not all, to ritual. And the fact that Jesus began his ministry by submitting to a water ritual suggests that maybe rituals are kind of an important part of the way that relate we relate to the Lord. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, you um, you write the following, and uh, I think it's the fifth chapter, that in the modern age, people see the forgiveness of sins predominantly in terms of the individual. And then you go to point out, with slightly tongue-in-cheek in this passage, little, little bits of humor mm-hmm. come through in the book every now and then. But you do go on to point out that that there's a corporate dimension to sin as well in, in Scripture. And of course, you help us to think about Jesus' baptism, as just said, in, in, in that regard, you make a real point mm-hmm. about Jesus identifying with us in solidarity in the baptism of repentance by, by John, um, you know, given that sin is, is not just individual but can be corporate. Now, I've wondered about this passage on and off for, for a long time. I'd love to get your wisdom on it, because whenever I pray the prayer of Manasseh and the Apocrypha, I always stumble over verse 8. And the Protestant in mm-hmm. me rises up, and 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 I sort of just silently mouth it and, and move on to the stuff that I can amen. You know, uh, this is, could be my my issue, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because in in that verse it says, "Therefore, you, O Lord God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me who am a sinner." And that's where my voice is really coming back again. You know. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, <laughs> d- d- does this does this represent a different understanding of of sin, the righteous, and repentance, or is there another way of thinking about this? Yeah, I, I have to confess, I'm not sure. I shouldn't say this, but I'm not sure I've ever read the Prayer of Manasseh, which is a little bit embarrassing as a New Testament scholar. So that's actually the first. I I, I skimmed through your uh, podcast notes. I was aware that this was coming, but I, yeah, I. It seems like an anomaly to me, perhaps. I don't know. Um, because even righteous figures in the Old Testament repent, or at least, and again, like it's not necessarily their own personal, somebody like Daniel, right, who, you know, didn't worship idols, was faithful, you know, refused to eat even the meat, right, that was, you know, associated with idols. Uh, he still says a prayer of repentance, right, as do Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, so, uh, just just having heard this passage for the first time, read and heard this passage for the first time this morning, it strikes me as something of an anomaly, perhaps. Um, it would be interesting to see. Um, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder what the rabbinic tradition has to say about that. Because yeah. obviously the New Testament would agree that Abraham is a righteous man. I mean, Paul says that multiple times. Uh, and yet I don't think Paul would say that he didn't have any room for repentance yes indeed yeah it does jar quite quite directly with with paul's theology i've, I've always felt um but as a as an anglican you know it's this this is still this passage of scripture is still to be used in corporate worship you know we're not meant to establish any doctrine on the basis of the apocrypha but uh um and so it raises it raises questions uh, for me, it's interesting you mentioned Daniel. I wasn't aware that the Anglican Church uses that, where we we don't use that in in Catholic liturgy. How different we all are! This is um, very interesting. Anyway, um, we should move on to. This is just my own question, really. Um, which I just find a very interesting uh, passage in your chapter on baptism in the name, uh, which uh, I think is six or seven. You you link the invocation of the name of Jesus or the name of the Trinity with with worship, but you make a particular point um, in the chapter. You you say, for example, that calling upon the name of God in general and of the Lord uh, in the case of Israel relates to sacrificial worship, and the word sacrificial is doing a lot there and in in the chapter. You know, what does that add to our understanding of of baptism and and worship? The, the word sacrificial. Yeah. So I, I 
deliberately chose the word sacrificial because of some of the Old Testament passages that I appeal to, right? Um, Several passages in Genesis where Abraham sets up an altar and calls upon the name of the Lord. Now, you don't set up an altar because you need a table, right? You set up an altar to offer sacrifice. Um, Similarly, the, the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they set up the altars. You call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of mine. Uh, and so the reason, so that's where I got the language of sacrifice. Um, I suppose you could use it, uh, it, its significance with respect to baptism is twofold. One, I would think of it, uh, particularly in terms of the way that Paul speaks in Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, uh, your, which is your spiritual, your logical, your rational worship, right? That would be one thing. Uh, but also that worship uh, this relates to what I mentioned about Jesus accepting John's baptism and the importance of ritual. That worship is not just this free-flowing thing. It actually has forms and rites. Um, and I mean, as a Catholic, I affirm that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. It's a participation in Christ's sacrifice. And having just read some of David Moffat's essays, I would say, which of course culminates in the entrance of the heavenly tabernacle, not on the cross. But um, yeah, so... That would be the twofold significance of the sacrificial language there. One, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. But two, um, what makes that living sacrifice possible is the participation in Christ's own sacrifice right. through the rite of the Eucharist. Right. And and I think then rather neatly, um, we can move on to talk about your chapter on dying and rising with Christ and participating in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you make the link with baptism there, obviously through Romans 6. Um, it's always struck me that there's a strong case for infant baptism in the link between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our participation in that, and metaphors of of baptism. And you've got, I should mention, um, there's an appendix looking at, um, at this question for a more ecumenical audience, uh, which is much appreciated. It was uh, very enjoyable. Um, but before we get there, maybe just in general terms, what does the perspective of your study, you think, shed on Paul's theology um, mm-hmm. in just ge- very general terms? Uh, in general tr- terms, I suppose I would say, and I should say this, uh, in some ways, this was the hardest chapter for me to write because I had already written a, a lengthier essay on baptism and Paul. In fact, that's what prompted the invitation to write this book. Um, but I suppose in general terms, I kind of alluded to this or even mentioned this earlier, Um the fact that baptism establishes this, the pattern of our life, the pattern of the life of those who follow Christ, right? That the symbolism of um, being buried with Christ and rising to new life is what our life should look like, again, repeatedly. Uh, And that's why Paul will take language from baptism and apply it to his exhortations. I think the clearest example of this, which is in that chapter, is uh, in Colossians. I know people disagree about whether Paul wrote that or not, but regardless, there you have the dying and rising with Christ or burial. uh, Yeah, yeah, burial and rising with Christ. And then in the rest of the exhortation, he says, if you've died with Christ, then put to death these things. If you've been raised with Christ, do this. So uh, it really shapes his entire um, exhortation of what the Christian life ought to look like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I'm aware of, of time slipping us by. Um, there's a fascinating chapter on clothing imagery as it relates to to baptism, but I just wanted to jump towards um, the end of the book where you're, you quote, and you deal quite extensively actually with First um, Peter, um, the baptism now saves you. And uh, you spend quite a while exploring the import of this language and I would, I would expect many would pick up the book and want to ask the question, um, given the language of First Peter, does this therefore mean that baptism is a condition or prerequisite of, for salvation? You know, baptism now saves you. Mm. How would you respond to that? Um, I would say normatively, yes. Absolutely speaking, no. Uh, the Lord can do whatever he wants. So do I think all the great unwashed are all going to are going to lose out on salvation. Um, no, not necessarily. Um, when it comes to, I'm, I'm very, um, cautious 
when speculating about who will and who won't be saved. Um, the one thing that I will absolutely affirm is that any and everybody who is saved will be saved through Christ and through his offering. Um, and I think the normative way to be joined to that salvific act is through baptism. Um, but I'm not going to put limits on what God can do for people who, for any variety of reasons, have not been able to um, be baptized. Maybe they live in the middle of nowhere, have never heard the gospel, or maybe they sadly have had a horrible experience with a Catholic priest or some other representative Christianity uh, that like a traumatic experience um, that just prevents them from accepting baptism. I'm not going to say, well, it sucks for them. <laughs> um, I think the Lord can do whatever he wants, but he has given us these means as normative. Um, yeah. yeah. Fine answer. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. This is going to get a little bit choppy potentially now because we're going to enter a minefield and you argue, and I think surely correctly, uh, the following, um, speaking of Paul, Paul's audience, that by their common baptism, members of all the groups Paul lists, Jew and Greek, slavery and so on and so forth, find their more fundamental identity in Christ, an identity that relativizes the distinctions that often serve as a source of division and conflict. And I loved the word relativize here rather than simply abolish. Um, okay, now to the to the hot potato, how do you think this might speak into contemporary identity politics? Oof, yeah, that, that's a toughie. Um, yeah, I deliberately chose the word relativize because I don't think baptism does away with our identities. I mean, a, a Jewish person doesn't cease to be right. descended from Abraham you know, or to be you know, ethnically Jewish. Uh, that would be horrendous, I think, because um, uh, I would relate this to Paul's language of I mean, he speaks of different gifts, and of course he's talking there about spiritual gifts, but I think there are even different natural gifts, right? Uh, everything that we have, everything, every good thing that we have and that we are comes from the Lord himself, and it shouldn't be rejected. Um, nevertheless, I do, I also, if I do say so myself, I like the way I put it, that our fundamental identity as Christians should be found in Christ himself, and that's an identity that... Um, is not self-seeking, that seeks to serve others, that puts others first. And I think if more Christians, myself included, uh, lived that out better, we would give a much better witness to the world uh, that living this way can bring actual peace and joy. Um, the, I think the thing, probably the thing that saddens me most about identity politics, generally speaking, and I mean, that's, I'm painting with a broad brush because to some extent, all politics have to do with identity. But uh, I think you're asking about a specific version of that. And the thing that saddens me about identity politics is twofold. One, it strikes me as kind of joyless. Uh, and two, it strikes me as pretty divisive. Mm -hmm. um, and I think true joy and true unity can be found in living the path that Christ has laid for us. Uh, and that doesn't do away with the other important aspects of who we are, but it does as you quoted, relativize them and put them in perspective. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, I, I was, wasn't sure if I should go there with um, with this question, but thank you for <laughs> that wise response. Yeah. Now, just finally, uh, you know, because got to at least ask this on the book of baptism. What to do with Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1.17, which in certain traditions, of course, can get rolled out as a mantra. Uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. Um, what on earth did Paul mean? How, how do you understand that? Um, Paul could be hyperbolic at times, right, um, to make a point. And in 1 Corinthians, he's dealing with a very particular problem that people are uh, picking their favorite early Christian leader and it seems so for various reasons. Some of it has to do with eloquence, right? They like the guy who speaks um, most eloquently. Some of it seems to be uh, with who baptized them, all right? And he says, yes, he says, you know, Christ didn't see, send me to baptize, yet he does mention a few people that he baptized. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like he wasn't baptizing. Um, so he clearly did do some baptizing. Um, but I suppose um, I might also say that 
there's a sense in which, even as a Catholic, I could say this, especially as a member of the Order of Preachers, that preaching has priority, right? Because um, with the exception of infant baptism, which of course I'm in favor of, I have that appendix, as you noted, but um, preaching precedes baptism for adults. They have to hear the message, understand the message, and accept the message before they can even ask to be baptized. Uh, And so I think that's what Paul's getting at, is that uh, there's a primacy to announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, that then will lead into baptism. And what Paul was doing was he was traveling all over the Mediterranean telling people about Jesus. Um, And sometimes he baptized some of them, (laughs) but his main thing was um, getting the word out. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So maybe just a final word to, to to you. You know, what's one thing you'd just you'd love people to take away um, from the book? Just one thing, the most important thing for you. Um, so the thing that I took away from reading it, and I hope others will, is to come to a much deeper appreciation of their baptism. Um, it's a little embarrassing to say, but I I didn't really think all that much about my baptism until. I wrote this book and then I realized, wow, this is just an amazing gift. Um, and in the Catholic tradition, we have a beautiful way of constantly being reminded of this. When we walk into a church, you dip your finger in holy water and cross yourself. Right? And a big part of that, it's supposed to be a reminder of your baptism. Um, but you can also, um, when you're meditating on, on the cross, right? For Paul, the fundamental image for baptism is dying and rising with Christ. And so whenever you're meditating on on Christ's gift of himself for us, you can also meditate on how you were initiated into that pattern of life uh, and need to ask the Lord for the grace to do it better because <laughs> we can all do it better. <laughs> very much so myself. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, very much yourself, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah right. Absolutely. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, Father Isaac. Thank you so much for writing this book. Um, thank you very much for your time talking to us and uh, for all of those who um, are listening in do go and grab a copy of the bible and baptism um, published by baker academic Um, you will thoroughly enjoy it thanks so much chris it's been great to be with you you have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.